all semester looking at this book of Leviticus. As we think about this passage tonight, I want you first to think about the White House and what the White House kind of means symbolically for America. Now, this is not going to be a thing about Donald Trump. It's actually not a thing about any president. But think about going to the White House. How many of y'all have been to D.C. and actually toured the White House? Or maybe at least kind of been on the outer gates of it and looked around? Yeah, most of us, handful of us. Those are two different things. Most of us, I see some hands. Um, so here's the thing. You take an official tour of the White House, and they take you along this predetermined route through some of the rooms, through some of the bedrooms, a few of the kind of social quarters of the White House. Um, and, and that's cool. It's really, it, it's massive, and it's beautiful, and it's perfect in all of its detail. Imagine that you are at the White House doing a tour, and you get a glimpse of the president or you get a glimpse of someone in his family, like that becomes eminently more cool. Even if you don't like the president, it's just like, that, that was the, like they were in their pajamas, which they wouldn't have been. But like, I just saw him or I just saw her right over there. That would heighten the experience for you. Now imagine that you get a personal invitation to have dinner with the president at the White House infinitely bigger stage. I mean, you would, your heart would explode even if you didn't like the president because it would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You could, like, that would be your icebreaker thing forever for the rest of your life. Like, hey, what's your coolest story? Well, I had dinner with the president. Um, it would be amazing. In the book of Leviticus, God doesn't just like build this tabernacle thing, which he had done. And that's what we see at the end of Exodus is he had constructed or ordered Moses and the Israelites to construct this tabernacle and God's presence dwelt there. He shows up in fire and in cloud, which was symbolic of his presence in dwelling that tabernacle. And God doesn't just tell the Israelites, hey, come and see my awesome house. Nor... Does he say, hey, if you'll come to my house, I'll give you these little, these little glimpses of me in some ways. Now, that, that's kind of true in the sacrifices. But what he's actually saying through the sacrificial system and through all of what Leviticus is saying is, hey, I have built a house in your presence, and I want you to come and be with me. I don't want you to be around me. I don't want you to be getting glimpses of me. I want you to be with me. I want to enjoy your presence, and I want you to enjoy my presence. And Leviticus is answering the question, how does that happen? Because he's a holy God, and the people that he's in the midst of are not holy. They weren't then, and we aren't now. Their problem is our problem. That sin has infected us in all kinds of ways, countless ways. So Leviticus is saying, how do we get back into God's presence? One of the ways is through the sacrificial system. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So look um, in your handout up on the board. I'm going to reread part of this from last week in Leviticus 1 and then selections of chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's just too much to read um, and a lot of it's repetitive. But uh, let's look at this together. So Leviticus 1, verse 2 through 9 and then chapter 2 and 3. It says, speak to the people of Israel. God is talking to Moses, telling him to speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. 
He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Tent of meeting is another uh, word for the tabernacle. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire on the altar. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. That's just weird to read every time. Verse 5. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. What do we do with that? Here we go. Three things we're going to look at. Um, and I confess, if you look at your handout right there, I got really ambitious and I had this table thing working in my mind. But that sermon is like a two-hour sermon. So, praise be, we're scrapping that thing. So, same three points though. God in the sacrifices, Jesus as the sacrifice, and then love in the sacrifices. Right there, God in the sacrifices. Let's jump in. Uh, when we see this passage in... in if you've ever been around Christianity, we just sing songs about the blood of Jesus. Um, if you've been around Christianity or this stuff for long, you realize it's, it's bloody. It's bloody. It, and if you're not familiar with that, it's weird. And what I want us to understand is that though it is weird for many of us, it certainly is like as a weird thing kind of outside of religious practice in our culture, like sacrifices are weird and, and killing animals for not for fun, but like for purpose is weird even. But in that culture, it was not weird at all. In fact, in most ancient cultures and particularly in ancient Near Eastern cultures it, where the nation of Israel was situa situated, sacrifice was such a normal part of their life that it just kind of flows right into the worldview. And that's why in verse 2 right there in chapter 1, it says, so when you make an offering, it's just kind of casual, like, hey, when you start doing these things, do them this way. Now, I realize that some of you uh, may leave here tonight and call Dean Taylor, email Dean Taylor tomorrow and be like, hey, so at RUF last night, we were talking about sacrifices and... But we had hot chocolate, so like, you make a decision. I don't know. 
it's weird for us, normal for them. Okay, and that's, that's all I really want to say about that. Because God just jumps right in and saying, when you do that, here's what you do. Let's look at these three different sacrifices. The first is the burnt offering. So on your handout, uh, you'll see that I ended each of the three chapters with an ellipsis because there's more in these chapters that I didn't read. So some of this stuff is going to be directly in there. Some of it's in the part that I didn't read. Look, who can, who can bring a burnt offering? Anyone. Look in chapter 2. Or, sorry, verse 2, chapter 1. When any one of you brings this, so male or female, rich, poor, all this stuff. What we didn't read is that um, God gives provision for people who had different levels of wealth. If you had great wealth, then you would bring a bigger sacrifice of, of a bull or, or a sheep or a goat. If you had lesser means, you would bring a smaller sacrifice. And then if you were, if you were poor, you would bring a bird, a small bird. It was, it was a very uh, inexpensive way to offer yourself to God, which is what the burnt offering is getting at. So right off the bat, we see that God is concerned with people, with their varied states. He's not saying you have to stay outside of this thing, that you can bring yourself through this bird into my presence. The burnt offering, one um, scholar says this, I think I've got it up on the screen, um, said that, that God, that, let, me, let me back up. Even though you could bring different sacrifices based on your wealth, it was important and even demanded that 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 sacrifice, that animal, was without blemish. Whether it was a bird or a goat or a lamb or a bull, had to be without blemish. And, And the scholar says this, that God was not to be passed off with second best. He deserves nothing but the best of what you have. To this extent, the sacrifice was to be costly to the giver. Worship that costs nothing means nothing. Worship that is cheap leads to a cheap, superficial, and diminished experience of the living God. That's a big statement. And that statement doesn't just have implications for them back then. That has implications for us. Here's what I mean by that. Um, A lot of times when I'm... Not a lot of times, but often... I will meet with you uh, and students through the years, and they will, uh, you will say something to this effect. Um, maybe I grew up in the church, or maybe I didn't, but I want, I want a deeper experience of God. Like, I want to I have emotion in my relationship with God. I want to feel something with Him. I want, I want it to be deeper and more real or more personal. What do I do? And, you know, and I'll usually try to ask some questions to figure out exactly what they mean or if there's some situation that's causing that, that feeling or whatever. But, but usually in some way I try to answer that on two fronts. One is I talk to them about, about Jesus and say, look, before we start talking about things that, that maybe you can do in practice, let's just be upfront about this. Jesus Christ is the means to have the fullest experience of a relationship with God. He is not only the fullest, he's the only way that we get to have a relationship with God. Because he is our atoning sacrifice. He is all these different things. So we talk about Jesus. And and where are you with Jesus? What do you think about him? Um, Do you believe in him? Are you skeptical of it? The whole deal But we talk about Jesus. But but often I will then kind of go to a second part where I say, so, okay, like if you're good with that, if you at least at some level can acknowledge that you... 
that you are a sinner and you see that Christ is the Savior of sinners who reconciles us to God, then here's some, here's some practical things. Like, here are some helps. I might even call them, here are the means of grace. That's a big theological word just to mean like, here are the things throughout Scripture where God says, I'm going to show up here, and if you want to meet with me and, and grow in this relationship, here's where I'm going to be. And I'll talk about things like, yeah, reading the Bible. The Bible claims to be God's Word, and so if we want to get to know Him, we should get to know His words. I'll talk about prayer. We'll talk about um, going to worship on Sundays. Because RUF's not church. This is not a church. This, we're, a, we're a Bible study. We're an extension of the church on campus. Um, but the fullest expression of who God is is going to be found in corporate worship on Sundays as we celebrate the resurrection together. Okay? So I'll say some things like this. And, and usually as I'm going on in this, your, your face and your countenance begins to change a little bit. When I say things like, you know, you may need to get up 30 minutes early and, and spend some time in the Bible or try to carve out some time in your day to pray or do some of these other things, I said, your countenance will begin to change because what you're realizing is that this relationship, if I want it to be there, it's, it's going to cost me something. Like, I'm going to have to sacrifice my time or my convenience or maybe you might actually have to sacrifice your money. That you stop spending everything that you earn or everything that, that you get from your parents just on yourself and on clothes or on games or on the, the next concert or whatever. And that God may actually be asking you to give some of that to the church or to a nonprofit you work with or a justice initiative that you care about or to your favorite campus ministry at TU. Like, I don't know. Or our interns, maybe, you know. Um, you realize that it's going to cost something. Look back what that author says. That worship that costs nothing means nothing. Is your experience with God lacking? And if the answer to that at some level is yes, then let's ask the necessary requisite follow-up question. What is it costing you? Is there any sacrifice of your life involved in how you think about your relationship with God? Now, look, he's not asking you to sacrifice so you can have a relationship with him. That's why I always talk about Jesus first. He's the means to the relationship. But to talk about enjoying the experience of that relationship, it starts to get into, am I bringing him any part of my life that is valuable? My time, my money, my thoughts, my schedule, my summers. So that's, that's in this burnt offering. That's kind of um, what this is all about. And when this offering is made, it's consumed fully on the fire. All of it. There's nothing that's left over. Ain't nobody having dinner afterward. Like, the whole thing is burnt up. And it says that it ascends to God. Verse 9, 13, and 17 that we didn't read. All says that it makes a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Read verse 9. A friend of mine said it like this. What an Israelite who woke up in the middle of the night or even walked by the tabernacle at any point in the day and would walk out of his tent, and when he would look toward the center of the camp, he would see this smoke and would think this. He would smell the constant cooking of meat with both its sweetness and its bitterness, and he would be reminded constantly of the goodness of knowing a God who has made a way back to his presence 
and the bitterness of his own sin and what it requires to be in his presence. So these sacrifices, this burnt offering in particular, was just a visual all-the-time reminder for Israel that God is holy and we can't just approach him how we want, but he has made a way for us to approach him and so he is good. It also reminds me that, that I'm a sinner and I don't get to just do this however I want. So that's the burnt offering. Second, the grain offering. Look at chapter 2 right there. What's this all about? Well, it says that you would bring an ordinary gift of flour or bread. Okay? Now, this is, without going into tons of, of background detail, this is them bringing the fruit of their work. Many slash most people in that society was an agrarian society. And so flour and bread would be a product of what they were doing day in and day out for their work. And so when they bring this offering, it is speaking about the dedication of their work to God. And what this teaches us is that our life is not like, think of a cafeteria tray. Some of you have heard me use this just when we sit down and talk. We tend to think that our life is like a cafeteria tray. You've got the big portion right there in the middle, the bottom middle, and then you have kind of these surrounding little square or circle portions. And that the big part right there is our spiritual life, right? Like, I know that's supposed to be the most important part of my life. And, and like, you would maybe say that if you would think yourself to be spiritual, religious, Christian, whatever. And then, but you've got school over here, and then you've got family, and maybe you're dating someone, so you've got a relationship, and then you've got um, video games or, or, right, your thing up here that you're interested in. But, like, you kind of feel obligated to say the big part is, like, that's my, that's my Christian life. Well, that's not, that's just not how the Bible talks about our lives. It's not how God talks. And this offering is a way of saying, yeah, that's not really it. Um, all of your life belongs to God. The whole tray is your life, is your life with God. And there are different aspects of it, yes, but we are to think and act in accord with God in all these different areas. So that means that when you, when you go to school, when you study, when you show up in class, it means that that is not an unspiritual activity. That's not like segmented from your spiritual life. That is a holy pursuit. And so for them, as they're bringing the the fruits and the products of their labor to God, what he's saying is that I care about, when he's demanding they do that, what he's saying is I care about all of your life. Not just your little churchy thing you do on the weekends or on Wednesday nights or maybe in a small group. Like, I care about all of it. All of it. So that means that if you are in a relationship with God through Christ, that you are called to be the best student. Notice I didn't say the smartest student. Some of you exhaled. It just means that you are to, you're to go at that with your whole being. You're to pay attention in class. You're to actually do what the professor asks you to do. It at least means you're not supposed to cheat. 
It means that you're to look at this and say that I am called to give my effort to this class and to this work. I'm here. Someone is paying for me to be here to learn. My parents or me for the next 40 years or uh, some scholarship or in some way I am here being paid or being offered this opportunity to learn. And God said that matters. That's a holy pursuit. It matters. So this offer encourages us to not make work an end of itself, but to bring it to God and say, what do you want with my education? What do you want with the rest of my life? It also teaches us that our work is not just ours. Like what you do for the rest of your life is not just your decision to make. You don't get to say, if you are a Christian, you don't get to say like, I'm going to go make as much money as possible, and I don't care what it is. I don't care who I have to step on along the way. Like, that's what I'm going to go do. We don't get to do that because what that's saying to God is, um, I'm going to decide for myself uh, what's number one, and I'll bring you some part of that. God's saying, no, you got to bring me the whole thing, and I'll direct that for you. What is this, why does this matter? Well, it matters because... Some of us in here were casualties of, of parents who did this. Okay? Some of you, your parents, either one of them or both of them or whatever your situation may have been, they were all the... T- all. Oh, what am I trying to say? They were so willing to offer up their family, their marriage, their anything, their kids, on the altar while they worshiped their career. And some of you are casualties of that, and you know it. And your parents were never around. They were never there. They never gave you the attention that you long for. Some of you really are just now beginning to understand this, and it's going to play itself out over your life for the next while. God is saying you don't get to do with your life just as you deem is best. He calls us to bring our work to Him, and He sets it apart for us. And He's giving us some inside info here. If you ever want to try to be different than your parents, or if you ever want to not just be given to a slavery of your work and of your vocation, of, uh, of how much money you make or your title, then you're going to have to do something regular in your life that pushes back against that. And what this offering is saying is you've got to bring part of it to Him. You've got to bring fruit of your labor to Him as just this ritualistic way, like just pounding it into your mind that this money is not my own, that my job is not my own, the, the big salary I have is not my own. God gave it to me. My position in this company is not my own. God gave it to me. Because if we don't do that kind of stuff regularly, I mean, for them it was all the time. If we're not doing that, we will be tempted to think it's all because I'm awesome. And all this money I'm making is because clearly I deserve it. So God demands that from us. Third, the peace offering. The big thing, the big thing we have to notice in the peace offering is that only certain parts of the offering would be consumed on the altar. And that's kind of the point where I read it and I stopped and said it's weird. Like, so you're offering, God says, I want all the fat parts, which we're all just like, yeah, take the livers, please. You can have the kidneys. That's fine. Um, but those things in that culture, and again, most ancient cultures, those were the delicacies. That the fat parts of a body of, of an animal, that was reserved for the king. Those were the good parts. 
Okay, so God says, I'll take those. But for the rest of it, you're to, you're to take the rest of that meat. And we didn't read all of this. But you're to take it and, and cook it. And then you're supposed to throw a party. You're, so, you're supposed to have this big meal celebration that I'm the God who has made peace with you. And because of that, you can have peace around you with other people. And what would happen in this is that as people would bring their animals and they would get cooked by the priests and all of this, that, that poorer people around them who didn't have such big animals to bring because they weren't as wealthy, they would get, and they were even, in, the, the richer people were implored to invite them into the celebration. And so the peace offering was a means by which God was saying, because I have given you peace with me, and because I have answered the biggest question out there for you of how you get right with me, you are now sent out into your community to be right and to be at peace and to have fun and enjoy one another. When, um, <clears throat> when I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, I was in seminary there. Sarah and I, we went to this church. Um, it was a great church. It was a weird church. Um, it was as like all churches are in some ways, but this church was, it was multi everything. It was multi-ethnic. It had massive socioeconomic diversity there, racial diversity, uh, national diversity. We had people from all kinds of countries. It was, it was bizarre. It was a beautiful mess is what it was. But one of the things that that meant is that this church was never like financially stable, it was all, there were high needs in the church, and so it was always giving out money to help people. So it was always struggling financially. And shortly after I arrived, um, and I was an intern at that church, and shortly after we got there, it was their five-year anniversary. And the pastors, and I guess the staff, they planned this huge party, like this huge celebration for their five-year anniversary as a church. And I don't know about you and how you grew up, uh, if in the church or not, but I grew up in the church, and the church I grew up in, when the church had a party, it was a cake and punch party, <laughs> like at best. Maybe a potluck. Those were actually the best. Um, but, you know, it was fairly minimal. And so when I showed up here at this five-year anniversary party, and it was legit spread, like real deal meats, wine, cheese, like whatever it is that's good in your mind, that was there. And so I walk in, and I get nervous. So I'm like, oh, I'm a finance major. I know how much this stuff costs. Like, uh, you know, I'm doing, like, running budget numbers in my mind. That's the kind of person I am. And, um, and I just can't enjoy it in the way. And so I decided I need to talk to the pastors. I'm going to let them know this wasn't okay. So I met with them a couple days later. There's nothing like a seminary student thinks he knows everything. I meet with them a few days later, and I said, hey, can, can we talk about that party? And um, they said, yeah, what's up? It's like, it just seemed like a little much. And they said, Brent, we are going to celebrate because we have a God who celebrates us and who celebrates with us. And I don't know if you know this, Brent, but the Bible is full of feasts that God throws for his people. And more than that, for some of the people who are part of our church, that's the best meal that they're going to have all year long. And we want for them to know that it is in God's house that they're going to have it. I didn't have any more follow-up questions. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you. That felt great. I'll just be over here in seminary. Do you know the God who loves to be joyful with you and who is inviting you into deep joy with one another? That's what the peace offering is doing. Let's talk about Jesus as the sacrifice that all these offerings culminate in. This gets shorter and the next one's shorter after that. Look, first, the writer of Hebrews explains to us, um, the book of Hebrews really is this big treatise on how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Okay? The writer of Hebrews tells us that that none of these offerings by themselves um, showed everything about God. We're getting him in bits and pieces in each of these offerings. So with the burnt offering, what we see is that it's wholly offered. It's totally consumed. And I mentioned that. The whole animal was there. Nothing was left over for food or for anything. And that actually points forward to the New Testament. Time and time again says that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice, the full and final sacrifice, and that he offered himself as this flawless gift, this flawless offering, and he was accepted as a perfect sacrifice. Look, y'all, what it means is that when Jesus willingly goes to the cross, he gets up on the cross of his own volition. Yes, they were taking him on there, but but he he would not be up there unless he wanted to. He was God. He could do anything he wanted. But he humbled himself and went to the cross. And at the cross, we see something very important. That the fire of God's wrath came down on him and he was consumed. So that the fire of God's wrath doesn't have to come down on us or any other sacrifice anymore and be consumed. That Jesus was fully and finally consumed for us. He is the burnt offering. All of him was taken. There wasn't any part of him that remained. And that's why the Apostles' Creed would say that he descended into hell. He felt the full effect and experienced the full effect of God's wrath for sin. The second thing in here, the grain offering, the work offering. Look, Jesus came. This this hit me this week. I hadn't thought about this before. The first 30 years of Jesus' life, he was a normal dude, a normal guy. We have every reason to think he was a carpenter. That was his family trade. I mean, it was, but we think that's probably what he did for a living. I honestly thought, and the way they looked at Jesus, is that for 30 years, he was just, like, he was doing stuff. He was a carpenter, but he was just kind of chilling waiting until, like, his ministry time was going to come, and then he was going to get in the game. But I think I learned that Jesus, as he was just doing normal work, a normal carpenter job, a normal bank job, a normal engineering job, whatever it is you're going to do, he was fulfilling the law for us. That in the ways that we won't work perfectly and, and think about our vocations as mattering and we'll hoard our money and we'll, we'll suppress people beneath us and we'll suck up to people above us and we'll be tempted to cheat or we will cheat or we'll cut corners here or we'll cheat on an expense report there. Like In all the ways that you already have been and that you will be an imperfect worker, Jesus was the perfect worker for you. And then in his life and death and obedience, he was the perfect working, substitutionary sacrifice for you. So he fulfills the grain offering. Third, the peace offering. In Luke 14 in the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable about a great banquet, about a great banquet that's going to be thrown at the end of history. And he looks up to them, 
at the people around him. And around him were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of people in his day who were seeking to have strict obedience to, the, to all the Old Testament laws such as we're looking at here. And so part of that law is that only the people who were um, ritually pure could come to some of these feasts. And Jesus looks up as he's talking to these people and he says, Yeah, there's going to be people who aren't invited. But the people who are invited are this. Go quickly out to the streets and get the lame and the broken, the poor, the crippled, the blind. All of those people in the Old Testament would have been considered ritually impure and not invited to the dinner. But Jesus says, that's the kind of people I want. And then he he goes out and says, just go find whoever in the far countries. Just bring them all in. I'm going to have a full table. Why does that matter for you? Because some of you, frankly, are looking at your life right now and the history of your life to date. And your life is marked by impurity by spiritual or moral uncleanness. You think that you are the last person who would ever be fit to enter God's presence. And you have to hear Jesus say, those are the very people I came for. Those are the kind of people I'm inviting to my banquet. How can he just say that? Because he was impure for you. He's taken your impurities from you. He's taken all of your sin from you. He has done the very thing necessary to bring you into the feast. And then lastly, this kind of covers a lot of them. Did you notice how several times it talks about the people leaning on the animal or putting their hands on there uh, and all this stuff? Friends, what that means is that they were, it was an act of dependence on the animal, that I'm trusting that as I do this, this animal is going to act as my substitute. Horatius Bonar, most well known for a song that he wrote called It Is Well With My Soul, he said this, What should we have to say to the Israelite who should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim and who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he had done them right on the proper place or in the right direction with adequate pressure or the best attitude? Should we not have told him that his own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb and yet that he was speaking as if they were? Should we not have told him to be of good cheer Not because he has laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion, but because they had touched that victim. However, lightly and imperfectly, and thereby said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, and even die for me. The touching had no virtue in itself. The quality or quantity of faith is not the main question for the sinner. What does that mean? It means that, How well you think you're doing in the Christian life or on your spiritual journey doesn't matter. What matters is, are your hands on Jesus? Are you touching the Lamb who's done everything for you? That's what this is driving toward, all of it. Finally, love in the sacrifices. Let me just just wrap up. When was the last time you made an attempt to be there for someone else? You had a friend who was hurting, um, and they had a, the, someone passed away in their family, or they've been broken up with, or, or any sort of thing where someone comes to you and they need you, and they need you to to listen, or they need you to, to let them cry on your shoulder, they need you to skip a class and go to the hospital with them, whatever it may be. 
think about Christianity and all these things are, are they're bloody and they're weird. Um, it led one scholar or, or one, one critic to say this. I don't think we need a theology of atonement after all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We need to concentrate on God's love and how God is a, love, a God is a God of love and He's not a God of blood and all of this. The violent images we get in the Bible are beneath God, they say. Friends, I want to simply say that it's impossible to have love without sacrifice. A love that doesn't sacrifice and have sacrifice as a part of it isn't, isn't deep love. Because you know that in order for you to love your friend, you're going to have to sacrifice your schedule, your time, maybe your money. In order for you to love someone around you, you're going to have to give of yourself for them. Look, my wife and I, we have uh, four kids, four girls that we love. But I'm telling you, it is a raw moment when you realize that this is a one-way street for a long time. (laughs) That we are giving a lot. And we get some cute things in return. But love means we are sacrificing our lives for them. And we're happy to do it. But it can suck sometimes. Love without sacrifice isn't real love. In the gospel, in Jesus, we see the fullest picture of a God who loves us because he sacrificed himself for us. Hebrews ten twelve, it's up there behind me. It says that Christ offered himself once and for all as a single sacrifice for sins. In Christ, God's not just bringing you into God's house saying, look how awesome it is. He's not just giving you a little picture of who God is. He is bringing you to God's dinner table as family. And saying, you belong here every day with your mess. Come here, you belong. But you have to come through Him. He's the sacrifice of love on your behalf. Let's pray.